Lord willing, time willing, we're going to finish up 2 Peter 3 this morning. And uh, hey, let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer here before we get started. Good to be here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the time of worship. Thank you for the time of fellowship. Just get a chance to talk to people. And we pray that we would truly hear what you have to say, Lord, and apply it to our lives and go out and live it to represent you in all we say and all we do. A lot of activities coming up over the next couple months, and they mean nothing without your blessing. They want it to be for you and your glory in your name. Amen. Lord willing, time willing, we'll finish up our study here in Second Peter. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, Peter starts out talking about how to live the life practically. What does it really look like to go out there and be a Christian? And one of the key points of that is God's word. And that's how he ends chapter 1. Well, in chapter 2, he brings up this point of God's word being attacked, being attacked by false prophets, being attacked by false teachers. And the rest of 2 Peter chapter 2 is that battle of staying true in God's word. We've repeated this point many times over the last few weeks. There are three truths in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is truth. Jesus is truth. God's word is truth. That is what we focus on in this time of falseness. Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's the final chapter here. This is the final epistle that Peter wrote. According to church tradition, he was martyred after this. And he knows that his end is coming. He mentions that in chapter 1. So these are the final thoughts through the spirit that he has trying to encourage the church. I always think about this when I read one of Paul's books or Peter's books towards the end of their ministries. It's like mom or dad leaving the house and like doing the final, like almost yelling out the door, hey, don't forget this. And that's kind of what Peter is doing here. He brings all these points together. So with that being said, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He goes, I want to remind you. Now, this should not be anything new to you, because if you remember back from chapter 1, jump back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Take a look at verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Verse 13. Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. And one more time, verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He knows his death is coming, and he says, I want to remind you of these truths. We say this a lot out here. You're probably not going to learn anything brand new this morning. What we're trying to do is to constantly remind you of the truth of God's word. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. The purpose of church is to equip the saints to go out and do the work of God. So what we do on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night is to give you a time of worship, a time of fellowship, opportunities to serve, minister, missions, trips, etc. And then we're trying to equip you with the tools to go out and say, I want to make a difference for Christ and where I live and where I work. So we get together, encourage and equip, and then we go. We go. Remember when we stopped, I think it was a few months ago, we finished up our study in Matthew, and we finished up with that idea of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go. God has asked us to go. My wife has sent me this devotional that just really hit me, where the guy said, if God told us to go, and we are choosing to stay, there better be a good reason why we're ignoring the command to go. God has asked us to go make disciples. There's supposed to be effort involved in that. So that's what our life is supposed to look like. And he's trying to remind us of this. And he's trying to stir us up. Stir us up. He's trying to wake us up. That's what that word literally means, is wake you up. I see a lot in the church today, the Christians that know the truth, are living morally a good life. They're just kind of flatlining. They're just kind of plateauing spiritually. God wants to wake us up. He wants to stir us up 
to say there's more than what's just going on right now. It's not about going to work and coming home to work. It's not about life. It's about representing Christ. And I want you to be woken to this. But he wants to stir up in verse 1 our pure minds, our wholesome minds. Not your impure mind. Don't stir that up. Stir up the pureness of your mind. Reminds me of this. We're at springtime right now, and we have this ditch in front of our house, and we have this huge net. And the boys love to go out to the ditch and catch stuff. And we catch uh, crawdads. There's been snakes out there, turtles, etc. And this year we have this one bullfrog that's always in the same spot. So on an almost daily basis, the boys go out, catch the bullfrog, and then they have a kind of a kiddie pool in the back that we fill up with water for the ducks and stuff. And they take the bullfrog, go put him in that pool for a couple hours, and then they go put him back in the ditch. And then tomorrow we'll catch him again, go put him in the kiddie pool for a couple hours. I don't speak bullfrog. I think he likes it, but I don't know. But the way the ditch is, when you go out there the first time, you can see everything. But as soon as they take that net and they scrape that bottom, it is stirred up. And you can't see a single thing. Now, that's the same concept here. What Peter is trying to tell you is, listen, you have a lot of stuff in your mind. Good, bad, and ugly. He goes, I want to stir up the pure mind. I want to stir you up about the things of the Lord. Not get you stirred up about the things of the world, but the things of the Lord. And I want to remind you and wake you up with that. And what I'm going to do with that, verse 2, is the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles. I find this very interesting. There's a lot of important points here. He uses the words of the prophets that told us about the Messiah to come. And he uses the words of the apostles that told us that they saw the Messiah. Please note how Peter takes those in verse 2 and so interconnects them. The prophets and the apostles are on the same level there. There's an equality there. How interconnected the Bible is. He even goes one step further. Look at 2 Peter 3, same chapter. Jump down to verse 15. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You have Peter now referencing Paul's letters. And please note, Peter refers to them in verse 16 as scripture. 66 books of the Bible, written over thousands of years, about 40 different authors, all completely interconnected. Apostles, prophets, Paul, Peter, all scripture. The longer I walk in this world, the more I realize the importance of Genesis to Revelation, just teaching and preaching God's word. And this is what we focus on. And this is what you see Peter doing. The prophets told you about it. The apostles told you about it. Paul's telling you about it. I'm telling you about it. The whole scriptures are telling you about it. We're going through the book of Ezra on Wednesday nights, and one of our key themes for that comes out of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews says that the whole book is written about Jesus. And as we go through the Old Testament, we look for Jesus in the Old Testament because the whole book is about him. And that's all interconnected there. So with that being said, Peter is saying, I want to stir up your pure minds. Be mindful of the scriptures. Why does he remind us of this? Verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He's trying to stir us up and remind us, because in the last days, there's going to be scoffers, some of your translations, mockers, are going to come and attack Christianity. Now, this is what I've noticed. When a Christianity is brought up, one of two responses. It's either made fun of or it's hated. 
That's really what you see. If you bring up the relationship with Jesus and God and heaven and hell and Christianity, you have some people are just angry. How dare you talk about judgment? How dare you talk about God? How dare you talk about me having to be forgiven of sins? They're angry. The other group, they just find it hilarious and they mock and they scoff. So anytime you go present the gospel, anytime you bring up the Lord, creation, anything like that, and you see people start to mock it and scoff it, do you realize they are fulfilling prophecy right in front of your eyes? So when I go up to a non-believer and I try to tell them about the Lord and about Jesus, and they scoff at it, they mock it, I almost want to stop and say, thank you for fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) You just shot down your own argument about there is no God. Because 2,000 years ago, Peter told me you're going to mock me for representing Christ to you. And that's what's happening here in the last days. What is the last days? Waiting for his return. Waiting for his return. I think it was Pastor Chuck Smith was the first one I've ever heard make this point. That every generation believes their generation could be the last because it spurs us on. Christ could be returning. What we believe and teach out here at church is this. We believe when it comes to the last days, we believe that there will be a rapture of the church. First Thessalonians talks about this. First Thessalonians 5.17, it says that we shall be caught up into the heavens. And that Latin word is literally rapture. So Jesus will take the believing church out. We also believe last days that Jesus will physically come back to rule and reign on the earth. Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. He will actually come back. And rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth. And then in between those two events of the rapture and the second coming, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. And this is where you have your seal judgments, your bowl judgments, your trumpet judgments. The book of Revelation centers a lot in that. You have the rise of the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, etc. So those are the last days. Last days waiting for his return, waiting for that judgment. And that's what we believe and teach. Now the scoffers and mockers are going to tell you in verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You bring up end times and rapture. Yeah, I've heard this for years. I've heard this all my life. Yep, Jesus is returning. And guess what? He hasn't returned yet. And they scoff at it. They mock at it. And what do they do? Verse 3, they walk according to their own lusts. That's what they walk. What does that look like? To walk according to your own lusts, knowing that the end is coming. Can you go with me to Luke 17, please? We just referenced this passage in length just a couple weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it fits right in perfectly again. Luke 17. What does it look like to think that nothing changes, judgment isn't coming, and I'm just going to walk according to my own lusts? Luke 17, please. Verse 26. Jesus speaking. And as it is, was in the days of Noah, so also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The flood of judgment was coming, and what did they do? Verse 27, eat, drink, marriage. They just continued on with life, walking according to their own lust, not even thinking about judgment coming and about Noah preaching righteousness, the Bible says. And why are you building this big boat? They didn't care. What else do we have? Verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that the Lot went out of Sodom, it rained the fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. They didn't care that judgment was coming. Fire and brimstone was coming. What were they doing in verse 28? Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting. They're, they're building, they're planning for the future. How often do we put all this time and energy into the future? Well, we don't even know if we're guaranteed that. 
I got this little saying we do at our house. Something big's coming up. It gets stressful. You're getting worried about it. We'll say this. We don't even know if we're going to be here. Jesus could return. That's the truth. He could return. Does this mean that you don't plan ahead? Does this mean that God has not given you common sense? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what is your focus? I mean, is your focus like Sodom and Gomorrah? This idea of eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building? Or is your focus spiritual matters? As we've said out here before, and this convicts me as well, we can spend hours on a project, hours planning something, hours doing this event, but then God gets like five, ten minutes in the morning for devotions. We have to make sure that we have the right perspective because we can plan, eat, drink, build, whatever we want, but judgment is coming. Rapture is coming. Second coming is coming. What are we doing? So what is our response to this? Verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So what does he do to remind us? Our response to this idea of the scoffers and the mockers. We see verse 5, they willfully forget creation. They willfully forget creation. Creation is God's greatest witnessing tool. Please remember this. The Bible never asked you to prove that God exists. He never does. So if you're going to get into a conversation with somebody who claims to be agnostic or atheistic and they don't believe that God exists or they don't believe there's enough evidence, it is not your job to provide enough evidence to believe that God exists. You will never see that in the Bible. God says if they want evidence that I exist, just point them towards creation. Romans 1 verse 20 makes it very clear that his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The Godhead is clearly seen, so they are without excuse, the Bible says. Every now and then I'll be talking to someone, and they have a hard time with the Lord because they have such a deep heart and passion for the people living in the middle of South America or Africa that have never heard the gospel, so therefore it's difficult for them to believe. Now, first off, number one, I don't believe they think they care that much for those people. But the Bible says this, and this is what I can tell them. Listen, when those people living there that have been unreached, untouched, etc., when they look up into the sky and they see the moon, they see the sun, they see the stars, they see the heavens, God says that's enough evidence right there for them to declare there's something bigger than me out here. They are without excuse. The Bible even builds on this. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans, excuse me, Psalm, Psalm 19. Psalm 19. It's not our job. To prove that God exists. It's our job to point them towards creation. I do believe it's important for us as a church to take a stand on creation. That's why we try to at least once a year do something that uh, builds up our, our evidence of creation. Builds up our facts about creation. You know, this year we went and saw that uh, Creation Ministries International movie. We went over to Finley and saw that. Last year we had a speaker come out. Because we do believe it's important to have the evidence to talk about it. But remember, we don't have to prove it. We don't have to prove God exists. We point them towards the evidence of it. Take a look at Psalm 19. Start in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the, all the earth, and their, world, and their words to the end of the world. Basically, what he's saying here is creation is crying out and speaking. Verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Okay, I don't speak that language that they need to hear, but creation does. Because they can look up and see it. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
Point people towards creation and let them start thinking about it. About what it means and what it represents. Know the evidence of creation. Know some of the background that comes with it to be able to answer questions. But point them towards that. But verse 5, they willfully forget it. That's fulfilled prophecy right there. Who would have thought 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this epistle that there would be such a push in the world to even think that this world was not created? But now 2,000 years later, once again, when talking to someone who does not want to believe in creation, I can look at him and say, wow, fulfilled prophecy right in front of my eyes. You don't believe in creation? Well, let me show you. 2,000 years ago, the Bible told me you wouldn't want to believe in creation, that you would choose to willfully forget it. Why do they want to forget it? Because judgment's coming, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are not preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's not going to be a judgment of flood. It's going to be a judgment of fire. Why do people not want to believe in creation? Because creation shows accountability. If I have been created by something, I am now accountable to that creator. So therefore, if God has created the heavens and the earth and has then created me, I am then now responsible for that that relationship I have with him. If I take out the idea of the creator and I'm just a fluke and I'm just an accident, I'm just this or that, well, there's no accountability. And with accountability now comes judgment. Now, here's the problem with judgment. When you start thinking about judgment, people just start tuning out. See, this is the problem I have with the Bible, they say. This idea of judgment, God, eternal hell, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, eternal blackness. Yeah, this is what I have a struggle with. Okay, let's look at what the Bible really says about judgment. First off, number one, hell was created for the devil and his fallen angels. Let's get that understood first. It was not created for us. God's original plan was for us to stay in the Garden of Eden. So hell was not even created for us. Let's remember that. Number two, we have a choice. We have a choice to accept or reject the offer of salvation that Jesus gave. If I chose to reject that offer of salvation, there is another choice, and that choice is hell. Now, at this point, I usually hear somebody tell me they don't think that's fair. Only two choices? And you've heard me use this example many times. Life is full of two choices. You're going to leave this church here today. You're going to head home, and I'm willing to bet that you're going to run into at least one stop sign. You have two choices at that stop sign. You will either stop or you will go through it. If you choose to go through it and there is a policeman watching you, judgment will come. We're probably going to go get groceries today. I'm going to load up my cart of food. I could either walk out that door without paying for it or I could go pay for it. If I walk out that door without paying for it, I'm going to get chased down. Judgment will come. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. It's just an example. But the point is, life is full of two choices. So therefore, when God comes and says, you have two choices. No, that's not fair. I believe there's many choices. No, most of life is two choices. What are you going to go with? So there's the eternal heaven. There's the eternal hell. As verse 7 says, it's judgment, perdition, sin of ungodly men. But then he throws this in verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That's kind of thrown right in there. Why? For a couple of reasons. Number one, if they're talking about why is it taking so long for this to happen, God says your time frame is not my time frame, verse 8. See, time was created for us. Days, hours, seasons, weeks, etc. Everything we do revolves around time. That's all we're thinking about. During this message, you're going to be looking constantly at your watch or your phone to see what time it is. You know we get done right around 1130. You know that. 
You know lunch is going to come around noon. Some of you may have to go to work today. You know what time you need to be in. You know what time you'll get off. Same thing with tomorrow. Our whole world revolves around time, and it just keeps pushing us forward. We can't sit and wait. Why? Because we don't have the time. God is trying to say here in verse 8, time means nothing to him. One day is as a thousand years, thousand years is as one day. That does not mean a literal trying to figure out the mathematical equation. It's just saying very arbitrarily, time does not matter to God. I was talking to one of my boys this week, and he was asking about heaven. What's it going to be like in heaven? And he was kind of concerned because what are we going to do up there for eternity? Because we're always thinking about time. We're not going to sit up at heaven and look down at our watch and say, well, you know, it's 2 o'clock, three weeks into eternity. <laughs> you, know, you know, now it's 4 o'clock, six months into it. No, that's not the way it's going to work. Time will not exist in the way that we think of it. Because God is not bound by that. So when we sit here and say, Lord, it's been 6,000 years. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended and you said you're coming back. Yeah, it's only been a couple days to him. Time does not work that way. So we need to trust his timetable. His time frame is different and he's not bound by that. Because why? Verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This verse is amazing. The Lord's not lazy. He's not being slow. He's being patient. The longer he waits to return, the more opportunities there are for people to get saved. I got saved in 93, so I've been saved for 24 years. I remember when I first got saved, I had people tell me, Jesus is returning soon. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way, but that's what we think. We always think it's going to happen soon. So now 24 years later, if you ask me, oh, man, Moving right along, could be soon. But do you realize when I first got saved in 93 and I was excited about this idea of Jesus was returning, it's like, yeah, Lord, come back, come back soon. The 24 years that has happened, some of you have gotten saved in those 24 years. God's patience, God's patience brought you into salvation. Like I said, I got saved in 93. Some of you got saved before I got saved. And when you got saved, you prayed for the return of the Lord. You hoped it would happen soon. But God's patience allowed me to come into the kingdom. So every day that God waits, it's another opportunity for people to get saved. That's his patience. That's his love. And we have a role in that. We are chosen to go out and represent that loving patience to the Lord. So it always frustrates me when someone tries to represent God as angry, as mean, and just loves to send people to hell. That is not the God of the Bible. And when I represent that to the people and they say, well, I don't want to serve a God that is angry, whatever. I don't want to serve that God either. Let me tell you about the God I know of. Verse 9, he's patient with you. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants us all to come to the saving knowledge. And the longer he waits, the more opportunities there are. Now, the Bible makes it clear there comes a time and a place where God says, I have to end this. Judgment needs to come. But right now, we're in this area, this time of grace of God saying, I'm being patient. And this is not anything new. Can you go with me to the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel 18, please. So often we misrepresent God as in a bad mood in the Old Testament and a good mood in the New Testament. Take a look at his heart here in Ezekiel 18. Two references in Ezekiel that we're going to go to. Ezekiel 18 Let's start in verse 29. 
Ezekiel 18, verse 29. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Do you, you realize thousands of years ago people were saying, oh, God's not fair. They were saying this back during Ezekiel's time. God's not fair. God says, wait a second, aren't my ways fair? I'm truth. I'm justice. I'm righteousness. I will not lie. But you guys will. My ways are fair. Verse 30, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Now, right there we usually stop. Oh, there's God again just judging everybody. Yeah, but look at the full passage. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Repent, do a 180, change. Verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's your heart of your Lord right there. He takes no pleasure in the death of someone like that. What's built on this? Stay in Ezekiel. Go to chapter 33 now. Chapter 33. Real quick verse, but it shows the heart of the Lord again. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. That's your heart of your Lord right there. Hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to eternal life. Patient, allowed to work in our lives, to keep speaking truth to us, to keep using the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But are we willing to listen? So when you get frustrated with that coworker, that family member, that friend, that whatever is constantly rejecting, God says, yeah, but I'm patient. I'm going to keep working. I mean, I, there's some of you here that I, I've heard your testimonies before. You did not hit your knees and accept Christ the first time the gospel was presented to you. Some of you, it took weeks, months, years, decades. Aren't you thankful for the patience of the Lord? So let's have that same patience when it comes to representing Christ move on here in our second peter 3 study verse 10 but the day of the lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up therefore since all these things will be dissolved what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat nevertheless we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells Okay, here's that theme again. The last days are coming, and it's coming in verse 10 as a thief in the night. This is an ongoing theme you see in the New Testament, that you know that it's going to happen. Do you know when? No. Do you know what day? No. You don't know what time. But you take steps to be prepared. Same thing spiritually. Do we know when this will happen? No. Do we know what time? No. Do we know what day? No. But we're taking steps now to be prepared. I've used this example with you many times before. The idea of our, our house being ready. You know, we've got a small group tomorrow at our house at 7. So therefore, our house will be ready at 6.59. That's when it will be ready. So if you're coming to the small group study, 6.59 is a beautiful time for you to show up. Now, if you said, hey, James, I'm coming over tomorrow. And I'd say, oh, what time? And you would say, I don't know. I'm going to take my boys home today. We're going to clean the house, and it's going to be good all day tomorrow. If you say, James, I'm coming over this week. I say, when? What day? I don't know. Every day, every moment, boys, you've got to pick that right up. I'm always prepared, always ready. Same thing spiritually. Listen, Jesus is returning. We already heard that so often that even we as believers kind of get desensitized to it. But Jesus is returning. 
When? I don't know. It could be right now. It could be in a week, a month, a year, a decade, a century. I don't know. But I need to be prepared and ready for it. And as the pastor of this church, I need to teach you the preparedness to be ready for it. So with that being said, coming as a thief in the night, what does this do for us? Well, it reminds me in verse 10 that it all burns up. All burns up. The earth is going to burn up. Everything in the earth is going to burn up. So that means that anything I get too focused on is all going to burn up. That doesn't mean I don't take care of my house. It doesn't mean I don't take care of my yard. It doesn't mean I don't take care of my responsibilities. But in the back of my mind, it's like, this is all going to burn. So all that time and energy I put into my lawn, yeah, it's all going to burn. That building that I thought was the most important thing in the world, yeah, it's all going to burn. That house that we spend so many hours on cleaning meticulously and remodeling, it's all going to burn. Does that mean you don't try? No. But in the back of your mind, you realize, what is really important? What do I really focus on? Because so much of what I see here and now will not continue in any way whatsoever. So it's all going to burn. And it's really interesting, if you like getting into the Greek a little bit, when it talks about the elements melting in verse 11, the elements dissolving, it's a fascinating term, which thousands of years ago when Peter wrote it, it would be hard to really grasp, but we can understand a little bit more. What that literally is talking about in verses 10 and 11, it looks like it's talking about the actual elements that we look at, the atoms we look at, literally being loosed. That's what that word literally means in the Greek. The elements will be loosed. Now, that would be absurd, but we know that in the last 60, 70 years, the idea of atomic weapons are what? The idea of atoms being split, being loosed, and the power that comes out of that. Right now, your God is holding this world in his hands, keeping it all together. There's going to come a time and a place where the Lord says, we're done with this world. I'm going to let it loose, and it's all going to melt. Revelation says we get a new heaven and a new earth at that time. So since we know this is going to happen, verse 11, it changes how you live. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It changes how you live. It changes your conduct. It changes how you look, how you live, how you act, what you say, because everything realizes eternity could just be a moment away. So when I go to work, yes, I am going to work. I'm going to do a good job at work, but I'm really representing the Lord there. If I go out into the world, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm running in and grabbing a loaf of bread, I'm actually on a little tiny missions trip as I do that. When I go home, these people that I'm so used to, that see the good, bad, and the ugly, no, I don't take my Christian hat off. I represent Jesus even there, and my kids, my wife, whatever I'm doing. Because I realize this changes my conduct and my godliness. And verse 12, it changes how I look at the future. Because what happens here? If everything is going to be on fire and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, verse 13, I look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So I have this constant focus on what's coming ahead. So that event on the calendar that brings me nervousness, worry, fear, and anxiety, yeah, Jesus could return before then. Okay, he doesn't return. Now I have to deal with it. Yeah, but you know what? The whole scheme of heaven and hell really doesn't matter. Lord, I just want to represent you as I do it. It changes how you live. It changes how you view the future. It changes everything. But only if you allow it to impact you. Because if not, you can go home today and say, yeah, Jesus is returning. Sure. Yeah, I got to go to work at two. So I can't really think about Christ returning today. Oh, yeah, Jesus is returning. Sure. I got this really big project I'm working on. No, it's always in the back of your mind. Always there driving you to a different perspective how you look at life. Let's finish this up, verse 14. 
Therefore, so therefore, since we know this is going to happen, beloved, looking forward to these things. Can you stop right there real quick? Looking forward to these things. Looking forward to what? The earth melting. (laughs) The new heavens, the new earth. If you say, well, that's hard for me to do, go watch the nightly news at 6 o'clock. You're going to want the earth to melt. You want a new heaven. You want a new earth. But I just got to ask you this. Do you really look forward to it? Because I think as believers, sometimes we throw out these little phrases. Oh, it's going to be great when Jesus returns. It's going to be great in heaven. But the problem is that it's such a huge step of faith for us. Because I don't fully know what that's going to be like. Am I really ready for that? Do I really want this world to end? Because I think so often as Christians, we spend so much time and energy trying to be comfortable here. For the Lord is saying, no, no, no. It's not about being comfortable here. It's about an eternal perspective and expectation. So therefore, I look forward to this. Even though I realize everything I've worked for in four decades, it doesn't matter. If you want further study on that, go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything you work for doesn't matter other than the eternal focus of Jesus Christ. So looking forward to these things, being diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall into, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Look at the final points here. We understand that there's going to be false teaching. Verses 16 and 17. We understand that. So we understand this is coming. It's been one of the big themes here in Second Peter. To know the truth, the truth of the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's word, the truth of Jesus. With that being said, verse 14, I need to be diligent. Diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. There is a focused diligence in what we do. I don't mean this to pick. I don't mean this to be whatever. I'm saying what I see in my life, what I see in other people is, to be honest, kind of a spiritual laziness. We, we, we know this. We know the truth. We have ten different copies of the Bible at home. We have church services that we could go to whenever we want. Small groups, 10 o'clock, Sunday, Wednesday. Numerous fellowship opportunities. We have so many interactions with people. We kind of get lazy about it. And so what Peter's reminding us is, hey guys, there's a diligence in what you're doing. A focused energy towards this. So you're supposed to be diligent as you do it. Verse 15, you're supposed to be patient as you do it. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So just as God has patience with people, you need to have patience with people. Be honest. How's your patience level with people? It's difficult. And it's difficult with people you don't even know. The person driving beside you who could be the nicest person in the world, you've determined them to be a jerk just by the way they drive. You know, so often we lose patience with the world, and not even the world, with believers. And we want to become like this little turtle. I just want to retreat by myself because I'm the only one that has it figured out. No one ever loses patience with me, right? Peter is saying, listen, God's patient. You be patient. God's diligent. You be diligent. What else do we have here? We're supposed to, as it says right here in verses 15 and 16, we're supposed to take all this information that we have. We're supposed to look at everything that he has. And we're supposed to consider it. 
Did you catch that? We're supposed to take this and consider what the Lord has given, the wisdom that is there to really understand it. Think about it. So often we spend so much time thinking about ourselves, maybe thinking about others, thinking about whatever. What about the Lord? I want to be thinking about him, focused on him. And then ultimately the last thing we're supposed to be doing, verse 18, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You've heard me mention this term before. I call it plateau Christianity. You just kind of flatline. You're, you're morally doing things right. You're in the word here and there. You're, you're serving at church. You know, if, if God comes up in a conversation, it's not that you're going to back down from it. But there's just kind of this, this flat line. There's no growth. The Lord is saying part of your spiritual growth is growth. Less of you, more of Jesus. Now, what does that look like for you as an individual? I don't know. I know what it looks like for me, but I don't know what it looks like for you. But there is spiritual growth. Put all these words together here. The final few verses. Verse 14, be diligent. Be diligent. Are we diligent? Verse 15, patience. Are we patient and the Lord moving in our lives? Patient, the Lord moving in other people's lives? Are we doing this? Are we having that type of patience when it comes to this? What else do we have? Verse 18, is there growth? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That's the goal of this book, is to remind you the end is coming. It's not to strike fear into your hearts, but to say, okay, if I know the end is coming and my time in this world is limited, I really want to be busy about my father's business. You know, we've talked about this a lot the last few weeks, that idea of being busy. And we hear it all the time, we're busy. Guys, everybody's busy. Busy. But we're supposed to be busy about the Lord's work. Remember what we talked about with Jesus a couple weeks ago. He goes, I must. I must be about my father's business. That's our focus. And I hope that's the focus that we have. And I hope through our study here in Second Peter, it has reminded you in this end times we live in, where is my focus? What am I doing? How am I growing in him through the Lord to be a light and a representative in all I do and say? Worship team, if you can come forward here. Hey, I just ask you to take a look at back there, the back table. There's a lot of different events going on. And for whatever segment of life you're in, there's something that you can get involved with. I want to encourage you, small group studies start tomorrow. Start tomorrow. Um, so like I said, there's one in uh, Hamler, Signet, uh, Milton Center. Uh, Don and I are hosting one in Deschler and one over in Holgate. Prayerfully consider getting involved with those. Doing the book of Colossians. It's going to be four weeks. It'll be a great blessing. We have a lot of other events going on. Opportunity to serve at Special Olympics to go represent Jesus Christ there. Uh, there's other activities. There's a uh, family fun night going on next Sunday. Missions trip to Mexico. Lots of different things. Prayerfully consider getting involved with those things you feel led to get involved with. And grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go over the worship team for the uh, final song and then lead you out with the word of prayer.